At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. Introducing the new era of digital identity with SoCure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why SoCure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. SoCure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, SoCure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with SoCure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit SoCure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E dot com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Black swans are becoming increasingly less black. Um, they're becoming probably more gray in terms of their, their commonality. Um, and uh, governments are, are, need to do a better job of moving from one crisis to the next without kind of sacrificing what they learned in one crisis and then having to recreate it all for the next, which governments generally do well um, with heroic efforts um, but it takes a lot of, of, of heroism uh, to respond. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. If you're a regular listener of the show, then you know how much I love to geek out on government technology conversations, especially those that are future-facing, which is why I'm so excited for the discussion I'm going to have with my guest today. Dan Chenock is the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government and a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration. Before joining IBM, Dan was the senior vice president for civilian operations with Pragmatics and prior to that was a vice president for business solutions and offerings with SRA International. In our discussion today, we're going to touch on workforce along with many other topics, including a program the center has coined Future Shocks which is looking at other events that could completely upend our way of thinking. And we're also going to talk about the priorities for the center and how they're looking at the future of warfare, which is all really cool stuff. 
Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Before we jump into some of these questions I have for you, because I'm really eager to dive into some of the fun topics we have in this episode, can you talk a little bit about your background, especially uh, your time inside of government? I know you've spent some time um, with government contractors, but also on the government side as well. So tell us a little bit about that background. Sure. So uh, I started in the U.S. government actually after college. I worked uh, in the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, which uh, no longer exists, um, but it was a sort of a counterpart to the Government Accountability Office dealing with technology issues. And then uh, after graduate school, um, I had got a degree in government and then went back to work for the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, starting in their Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, where I did regulatory and information analysis for the Departments of Education, Labor, uh, and later managed the, um, the office that, that did the same for all healthcare and human service uh, activity. Um, OMB does a, a lot of different things. It, it, of course, oversees the budget. It also oversees core functions of government, like um, financial management and information technology. And for my last five years at OMB, I ran the office that does policy oversight and budget development for information technology and information policy. Um, that office today is primarily housed in the Office of the Federal Chief Information Office. Uh, at the time that I ran it, that office didn't exist. And so I was the SES director in charge of that function uh, at OMB. And I left there in 2004 uh, and went, as you said, to uh, the private sector, went to SRA, um, uh, a prominent uh, uh, government uh, systems integrator, and then actually uh, came to IBM in 2010, uh, first to run a, pr a practice on technology strategy. And then I've been running the Center for the Business of Government uh, since then. And we can talk about the center uh, momentarily. Yeah, let's do that. Tell us a little bit about, about the center. And the thing that kind of got me really curious and one of the reasons why I wanted to to bring you on the show is, I mean, taking a look at the business of government holistically is a massive challenge. And with all the things that came out of the pandemic, I was frankly really curious, Dan, to understand what are some of the things that you're working on. So tell us tell us about the center a little bit and then some of your priorities at, at this moment in time. Yeah. So the center is 25 years old this year. So we're going to have a party in December. Uh, and uh, it was started to help actually Price Waterhouse prior to the um, IBM acquisition of of what was then Price Waterhouse Consulting, um, because the uh, leaders there thought that they could help government with more uh, academic research on topics that were challenges for government leaders, and that's still the basic mission of the center today. We we identify um, through a lot of different ways that we talk to governments through roundtables and podcasts and interviews and informal coffees and lunches. Um, uh, what's sort of on the, at the top of their minds in terms of what they need from new research that could help them do their jobs better, maybe not tomorrow and probably not 20 years from now, but let's say in the next five years. So we, we try to keep things fairly practical, but, but we're not doing sort of immediate contract type work. Um, we take all of their priorities that they identify and then we create a research agenda that's based on what government tells us that they need. And we put that agenda out to the academic community, um, much like a peer-reviewed journal article process where we issue a call for papers. Uh, and then 
Uh, we get a lot of uh, interesting thoughts back from, from the academy, mostly in the U.S., but sometimes around the world. Uh, and uh, we then uh, basically fund about one in 10 on average of those reports. Um, and what makes a report uh, unique is that it, it helps government address a technology challenge or a procurement challenge in a new and innovative way or applies a, a how some success has been done in one sector of government or even the private sector and how that could apply to another. So we really try to bring, make things both new to government and also make sure that our reports have actionable, practicable recommendations that government leaders can take up. Uh, we also do a, a series of other things. We're basically a think tank of sorts uh, inside IBM. And we do things like we have a podcast ourselves every week. Um, so we're part of your family uh, in that sense. And we also uh, do a lot of roundtables and convenings. Um, we have a very active blog. Um, uh, so we're constantly, when we're constantly interacting with other members of the good government community in Washington, like the Partnership for Public Service and the National Academy for Public Administration. Uh, and so uh, we, we cover a wide variety of topics that way. I don't know if my listeners are thinking the exact same thing, but I'm sitting here thinking this this job sounds amazing, being able to work at the center and kind of lead some of this research and help government, especially in near-term challenges. How did you end up in this type of role? And do you feel like parts of your career have kind of built you um, in the right way to be able to be the executive director of a program like this? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's sort of a job that combines several elements of what I've done over my career. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't have imagined 20 years ago that I'd be doing this, but it's really a, a, a perfect blend of, of activities and expertise for me because I, I, we do a lot of work with the center of government here in the U.S. and also around the world, sort of prime minister's offices, uh, OMB here, that sort of thing, governor's offices in the States. And um, since I was in the White House Office of Management and Budget for 14 years, um, I, that sort of that part of the world is very familiar. And then I spent nine years, I, I guess, I guess eight years um, as an industry leader on the on sort of the the business side. So I ran practices, I grew practices in in uh, several different companies um, and understood kind of what it takes for industry to provide um, new innovative innovative approaches and solutions to government. And along the way, I acquired an academic hat. So I, I actually have an adjunct associate professorship at the uh, LBJ School of Public Affairs with the University of Texas at Austin, where I teach about government policymaking and budget and I serve on a number of other academic advisory boards. So this role really combines academic research, government uh, needs and, and industry best practice. And, and it's I couldn't imagine a, a better platform. It's funny, when I look back across my life and my career, I, there's some things that I, I haven't been nearly as intentional about. I mean, some things I have, but I think there's other things. And maybe it's those things that I haven't been as intentional about and kind of stumbled into that I feel like have given me more comprehensive of a view into things. So when I land some in, into some position um, and I start start working on things, it's kind of fun to look back and say, oh, you know what? I I didn't realize that this role and this role or this type of work was going to give me the experience that it did. And, and I think that because I, I was, and this will kind of lead us into one of the programs you guys are working on, which is your, your future shocks program. Um, 
I've been reading a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. He's a, the former lead um, negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation for a long period of time, and he opened up his own uh, consultancy, and it's called the Black Swan Group. And before I started, started into this book, I had no clue what a black swan was, but I started... I started getting through it and understanding it and and understand that there are things that we don't even know exist, right? But they're sitting there and could be. Um, and then I, I jumped into some information that, that uh, your group is putting out. And it looks like it's talking about black swan events that government leaders are seeing as as something that they see as disruptive, right? Or destabilizing is the word that, that you use. And you're doing some work around preparing governments to, uh, to be able to become more resilient against future, sho- sh- or future shocks or black swan events. Tell us a little bit about this because this is really, really interesting to me. Um, thanks, Brian. And yeah, you're right. A, a career, it, it looks very um, kind of zigzaggy uh, from, the back, from the front, right? As you go through it. And, but you can go backwards and draw lines to, to lead to where you it's are. It's funny how that works, right? Um, uh, which is really interesting. Um, so future shocks, you know, obviously none of us could have imagined the zigzag of the pandemic um, in, in uh, February of 2020. I, I guess, I guess in Dece- I'll call it December 2019 because by February, things were starting to look pretty bad internationally. Um, and our center did a, a fair amount of research about how governments can address the pandemic itself and emerge stronger and more resilient from, from that experience uh, in sort of healthcare and supply chain uh, and other, other related areas. And we then sort of took a look working with our colleagues at the IBM Institute for Business Value and the National Academy of Public Administration uh, a prominent nonprofit partner. And we kind of said there, there are black swans are becoming increasingly less black. Um, they're becoming probably more gray in terms of their, their commonality. Um, and uh, governments are, are need to do a better job of moving from one crisis to the next without kind of sacrificing what they learned in one crisis and then having to recreate it all for the next, which governments generally do well um, with heroic efforts, um, but it takes a lot of, of, of heroism uh, to respond. Uh, you know, FEMA is probably an agency that's done a good job creating a discipline of emergency management where they built, build infrastructure, but that doesn't necessarily exist in, let's say, supply chain, after a supply chain shock or a climate crisis or a cybersecurity uh, event. And so our what we did is try to take a look at how can we help governments prepare for um, increasingly um, uh, harmful and frequent um, events that that are occurring around the world, and and um, we divided that do- those domains into six areas: um, cybersecurity, supply chain management, climate change and sustainability, workforce management. We started with the discipline of emergency management because we wanted to take the FEMA and uh, sort of emergency preparedness industry lessons and and apply them elsewhere. And then we're going to end with a session on cross-border collaboration because none of these shocks are geographic in nature, or many of them are not. Uh, And then we um, 
for each of these areas, we we host we have a roundtable of experts where we bring together leaders in the government, leaders in academia, industry experts, uh, nonprofit partners, and in Washington D.C. and then somewhere around the world, um, uh, we have a conversation that we curate through you know what are the capabilities that government needs to address that particular uh, area more effectively in the future. What's the current state of, of affairs and how can we close the gap between where governments are now and how they can work together with industry and academia to move forward? At the end of this process, we'll have six papers, one on each of those topics, and then an integrative final report that we're going to release at the National Academy of Public Administration fall meeting in November, uh, which is authored by uh, the former GAO Director of Strategic Issues, Chris Mim. Um, who, who has written a lot on these kinds of topics over time. And uh, we'll release that report. And we've been all along kind of, you know, integrating the findings with government leaders and just getting really interesting interaction and feedback from leaders who are appreciative of, the, of being able to participate in this kind of a research effort. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse into some of your findings? Because if you're talking to all these different uh, government leaders, not only in, in D.C., but around the world, I would imagine that on various topics, you're seeing some common patterns and trends kind of rise to the surface. Could you share some of those with us? Um, sure. Um, <clears throat> I'll take uh, cybersecurity. Um, so Tony Scott, the former federal chief information officer, was the author of that particular report. Um, and in the discussions, which we had in Washington, D.C., and also in Rome with, with Italian and European leaders, um, we talked about the, the critical role operationally of, of sort of government setting up information exchanges with industry uh, around um, uh, cybersecurity activity, um, you know, delivery of malware, uh, observations at, at the perimeter of systems, and the, uh, the need to exchange that information quickly and, and in, uh, through different kinds of actions. And we've had, we've had discussions, DHS, CISA was a key, part, key partner in, in that session, and, and they're leading a lot of efforts along these lines. Um, what we talked about also was the need to kind of act across sectors quickly and effectively, and also intergovernmentally, because a lot of, let's say, federal programs are delivered and accessed by uh, individuals at the state and local level where they go for, apply for a benefit that might be a, a federally funded program ministers through a state or a city. And so having a, a basically an integrated picture of not just cybersecurity from a technical perspective, but how it affects mission delivery of services that people need um, and understanding sort of the user experience and accessing those services and how to build strong cybersecurity into the user experience was a key uh, finding of that, that round table. That makes sense. And I, I mean, my next question kind of leads to, uh, I think, more geographic proliferation. One of the things that I've been fortunate enough to experience across my career is expanding my remit beyond just looking at the United States and, and even various government levels within the U.S., but, but globally. And what I've come to find is there's some countries out there that are doing it really, really well and in, in, in some areas, in some pockets, a little bit more advanced or mature, is it maybe a mature is a better word to, to use um, in terms of how they're approaching some of these situations. That generally, I used to think that mainly it's because of, of resources or what have you, but what I've come to find, it's actually some of the smaller countries that are doing it really well, and it's because 
they they don't have the level of bureaucracy that needs to be in place like the United States or some of the other larger nations. But are there, as you were having these conversations with roundtables, are there things that you saw around the world that you think are a little bit more um, future forward beyond kind of what the U.S. is doing that maybe folks in the U.S. could actually learn from? So, Brian, that's a really interesting um, observation. And we've observed not just through this initiative, but I've observed over my career that countries like Singapore and Estonia, uh, countries in Northern Europe, the Netherlands, for example, um, you know, often have the ability to move quickly. Um, they don't have nearly the, the scale or the complexity of, you know, a, a major uh, nation with so much geographic, demographic um, diversity uh, as the U.S. And uh, on the other hand, the, a lot of what the government does can be broken down into, you know, a, a team working at an agency that is at a similar scale to, let's say, a team working at an agency at a small, innovative country overseas. And so examples like, like we've learned from, um, from Italy about how they uh, bring cybersecurity into um, an actionable uh, part of their military strategy and, and developing interesting approaches to cyber operations and uh, in sort of preparation for and conduct of, of activities uh, in their military services that, that the U.S. can learn from is, you know, can be implemented by uh, people, you know, leaders of the Defense Department and working with industry partners, um, you know, at, at a, if you sort of break it down to what are they doing as a team, you can implement it uh, effectively. So, so we've seen, we have seen examples uh, overseas of, of things like this. We're about to have another a Future Shocks event in Rotterdam, at the port of Rotterdam, which is one of the world's largest ports. And uh, it happens to be in a, you know, a small country, the Netherlands, but it, it has a tremendous amount of, of impact on the supply chain effectiveness in the, in the Western Hemisphere and, and, and across the transatlantic. Um, and so I'm, I know that we'll, we'll gain a lot of knowledge from that, that we'll be able to apply, you know, at everywhere from the Port of Los Angeles and New York and Boston to how we think about um, commerce, enabling commerce in, in different ways. So we're, we're, we're always looking for those kinds of examples. The last point I'll make on this is that we are a partner, um, our center is a partner with the, the UK Commonwealth, which is a, basically all of the nations of the UK Commonwealth belong to a, an international organization that operates kind of like an, um, a, a UN for, for, the, for those 50 or so nations. And we're, we're a partner with them on, on research, and we're, we're going to be actually hosting a meeting at the end of June, beginning of July, um, co-hosting with them on international lessons about performance management, um, how, you know, what countries can learn from one another. And there is an area where um, measuring performance government programs is something where you can use data effectively and size and scale aren't as important as sort of uh, accuracy and innovation and how that's applied. That's really interesting. Um, another one of the six I wanted to bring up is around workforce. And the reason why is, I mean, we talk about this all the time, not only on this show, but I think a lot of us bring this up in, in some of the conversations we have is when you talk about modernization, especially kind of technological modernization of government, it's not just about the technology. The workforce plays a major part, especially around change management and 
the different types of skills it takes to be able to implement some of these technologies. So are there any things that you were finding from these roundtables on the workforce side of things? Yeah. So what we're workforce will be held actually at the end of June um, here in the U.S. And we're still talking to the OECD about um, how we might integrate with their work on you know, around uh, workforce modernization um, through the rest of the year. And the premise is kind of twofold. How can, in general, uh, the workforce of governments at all levels understand better the tools and how, and how they can apply artificial intelligence, emerging technologies, and also sort of emerging paradigms in the business community about how to organize teams in an agile way? How do you, you know, uh, operate um, uh, quickly and effectively as opposed to with, uh, you know, long tail bureaucracy as it has been commonly associated with with large governments. And at the same time, we've learned in the individual roundtables that in areas like supply chain management and sustainability and cybersecurity, there are particular skills that the workforce needs to kind of move forward. So we're we're kind of taking, we're actually doing the meeting in two parts. And part one is going to be a sort of a general strategic frame. And then in part two, we're going to dive in and, and understand sort of what are practically the skills that are needed for uh, enabling governments to work better and more effectively in in these individual domains. Interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely want to follow up and learn more about kind of what you what you come out with that uh, that roundtable. Like, what what type of information is yielded from there? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I want to pivot a little bit to another program you guys have going on, which is the the Challenge Grant Program or competition, actually. And you talked about this at the beginning of the show, that is, it is the 25th anniversary of the center. And to commemorate that, you guys are doing this challenge grant competition. Tell the listeners a little bit about this, because I think it's really cool. It, it allows people to really kind of vie for an opportunity to dive deep in things that they are really challenged with. Yep. We're, we're uh, really excited about this. We actually just closed the, the, um, the deadline. So, um, uh, but we're always looking for new ideas. So even if you miss the deadline, feel free to send us an idea and we can we can work up a blog topic or something. But um, we always try to use our anniversary as, as an opportunity to kind of think about the future, right? So people often on, on uh, sort of milestone uh, anniversaries or birthdays look back. We try to actually look forward. And on our 20th, we wrote a, a book called Government for the Future, which looked at sort of different scenarios of what government would look like 20 years from now. And for this one, we we basically challenged the field to come up with ideas uh, about how government can improve and leverage innovation and best practice in six different areas, artificial intelligence, uh, migration to cloud computing type networks, cybersecurity, shared services. So by that meaning um, the process by which agencies don't have to repeat common services for each program or each bureau or even each agency, but you can establish centers of excellence that can provide better quality service in areas like human resources or financial management at a lower cost than if you had to replicate each of those services at each at each agency or each bureau. And then how to use data and analytics effectively. We've got you know vast new um, ways to reach the data, to aggregate data, to use it effectively. And then uh, 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 how to apply customer experience to to different kinds of of uh, government programs, uh, there's been a lot of work in the U.S. government recently around applying CX to service delivery. So we want to think about how, you know what is the future of how CX can really uh, change the dynamic. And I mentioned earlier 
in your question about cybersecurity, uh, about um, an example of a future shock learning that we had was around sort of customer experience in accessing online programs can actually improve cybersecurity because you can build cyber into the experience rather than have somebody have to think about, oh, what are the six different steps I have to take to do the security? You can make it part of the part of the organic experience. So, so in each area, we got, I don't know, between six and 12 ideas, I think. We, we just closed and we have, I think, over 70 altogether. The, the top six are going to get a, an award um, uh, to be able to write more. Um, but we're looking forward to reading lots of different good ideas and, and leveraging and working with those ideas to, to create content and programs that, uh, that can help government move forward. One of, the, one of the things that just popped in my head is you guys spend a lot of time, obviously, looking forward, right? Even if it's near term, five to 10 years uh, into the future, and, in, and you've been at the center for, for a long period of time that, that you've gone through this process a fair amount. I'm really curious to know, are there things that you kind of prognosticated about that you, that absolutely landed, right? And you, it happened, you're like, see, I told you, I knew this was coming or on the opposite where you kind of thought it might, might really become something mainstream and really fizzled out. Are there things like that, that really come to mind that, that stand out for you? Yeah, I guess two different examples. One in that book I referred to earlier, Government for the Future, we had a, a whole chapter on the future of, of work that was um, written by uh, a Brookings Institution leader. And it, it looked at sort of where the government workforce would be in 2040, the year before the pandemic hit. And so a lot of the predictions about, you know, hybrid workforce, online service delivery, work from home, but still, you know, maintain high quality that we thought would be five to 10 years out. Well, they happened. Um, the, the chapter was right. They just happened a lot faster uh-huh. um, out of necessity because of the pandemic. Uh, and then I'd also say we, we did another uh, sort of future of artificial intelligence that kind of predicted about, um, you know, when we would get to more interactive, more, more what we now call generative artificial intelligence, um, you know, with all the, the focus on chat GPT and that's, you know, become a reality. So I would say that, yes, things are coming true. What we predicted, they're just coming through a lot faster than we thought, which gets to the, uh, back to sort of the future shock uh, paradigm. We took the name from the, the famous book, Future Shock by Alvin Toffler, which, which predicted that, you know, the future would just accelerate and things would happen more quickly uh, over time. And we're certainly seeing that as reality. Do you think the pandemic's the only thing that's accelerant um, in this in this scenario, or do you think there's other elements that have accelerated things? Oh, definitely other elements. I think that the the organic evolution of technology has been, you know, if you think about Moore's law and in the technology space, which basically says technology accelerates at a at a accelerating rate all the time. Um, uh, that's that's happened. We we now have. Uh, you know, the ability to have conversations globally with communities of people based on data that sits on servers all over the world um, in, in, in rapid fashion, in, in a group fashion. Developers can develop new applications or new innovations in medicine um, uh, using technology that, in ways that they could never have done before. And five years from now, I think we'll continue to see accelerating uh, progress in in technology with the advent of quantum computing um, and um, and related technologies that will that will result from that and so each 
each kind of new technology, whether it was the internet, social media, artificial intelligence, quantum, you know, brings with it a step function increase, I think, in, in the accelerant. And that was independent of the pandemic. So it, it, in bringing up that, that step increase, I, I want to bring up another program that you guys are working on, which is addressing the new era of deterrence and warfare and visualizing the information domain. And the reason why I think this is so prevalent, and I know this is some of the, the research that you're doing, is the, the war that's happening in Ukraine right now feels like a different era of warfare for a myriad of reasons. And I know this is something that you guys are exploring. Um, can you expound a little bit on, on this program and some of the things that you're finding, especially around the information's do information domain when it comes to warfare? Yeah, this is um, a project that actually we just released this week. We released our report with the Institute for the Study of War on developing ways to see information operations on a map-like framework, right? So in a traditional military campaign or traditional military strategy, um, you have a map of, could be of, of land, you know, of a land campaign or where, where are the ships, um, you know, how do you uh, deploy aircraft uh, around the world? Now we have, you know, space operations. You can even see um, through, you know, network patterns and network analysis, cyber uh, operations. So if you think about land, air, sea, space and cyber, um, uh, that's a, um, those are domains where you have these kind of visualizations that you can use to help inform decision makers uh, at different levels. But information operations, and you say it, it feels like a new uh, era of warfare, it's, it's an old concept, you know, the, the, trying to um, degrade your, the, the willingness of your adversary to fight, right? It's, uh, military historians have been talking about this for, for centuries, maybe even millennia. But the, the way that, that information, the speed at which information travels, um, given new media, social media, um, uh, cyber networks, uh, makes this a scalable operation um, that can reach people and sort of impact their, their behavior in, in many different ways. So when in the Ukraine case, when the Russians um, uh, tried to basically uh, create an information operation to undermine the will of the Ukrainians to oppose the Russian troops when they would come in, there was a counter information offensive by the U.S. government um, that basically, if you recall, kind of declassified information and revealed information about what the Russians were actually up to that kind of you know, caught the Russians a little bit uh, at before they were able to execute. And so um, there was both an information campaign and a counter campaign, but there was not a way to, with a common set of metrics and understandings, to put together a visualization of the effects of that um, or the effects of many similar operations that are that are sort of happening more and more frequently between, between nation states and also non-nation state actors. And so the Institute for the Study of War, which is you know, now globally famous for the maps that it produces of the Ukraine conflict, um, spoke with us about how do we apply technology, new, new approaches in um, uh, analytics, new approaches in how you can put together visualizations to create criteria by which you could develop these kinds of visualizations. And we, we spoke with leaders, defense experts, military leaders, um, uh, researchers in DC, 
We, we had a meeting in Brussels talking about European considerations and then a meeting at U.S. Pacific Command headquarters looking at um, the issues in the Pacific region. And we put it all together into a report that we, as I say, released a couple of days ago. It's on our website. It's the most recent report at businessofgovernment.org. And um, uh, it basically gives recommendations for how you would develop these visualizations. And our next step is to help bring together a community, a collective, if you will, of, of people who can start to develop kinds of prototypes and work with military leaders who have expressed in our, their discussions with us great interest in using these kinds of things to help manage operations. And that's, you know, that gets back to our core mission. We're, we're all about helping the government manage its activity better. And this is just a new area that we're moving into. The scenario you described, the thing that popped in my head, I remember prior to the D-Day invasion, back in World War II, on, uh, on the UK side, um, the, the US actually deployed uh, General Patton to basically from, a, I, I guess, to sidestep or, or distract uh, the German military to, to do some training initiatives. And not, they actually used inflatables. They used inflatable tanks and inflatable land platforms um, because from an information standpoint, if the Germans would see that there were tanks and, and they were planning an invasion, um, it, it might throw them off and in in kind of allow the troops to have the element of surprise going into D-Day. And this feels like obviously the, the, the next or, or probably multiple generations of that, but the same type of idea where you're trying to throw off your enemy and based on something you had said before around how everything has accelerated, right? I mean, through multiple different catalysts, not just the pandemic, but, but multiple catalysts. If we were to take a look at some of the findings you have now from, from this study, what's, what type of predictions do you have about perhaps the future of warfare when it comes to information over the next 10 years? Well, I'll caveat that I'm not a military historian or a military strategist. So um, uh, I've learned a great deal about the domain, but you know, I, I sort of think about applying technology to government work generally. Um, having said that, I, I think that the, what we've learned is that you know, governments are gonna continue to, you know, in, in hopefully in an effort to stave off kinetic warfare, to use information as a tool. Um, to gain to you know to gain uh, the, the the ends that they that they want, and this might be through you know increasing risks in the cyber domain, um, but it might also be you know through training of foreign students that come into a country and uh, you know giving them you know the perspective of the home country such that they can go back to their to their country and and sort of you know provide a different point of view to their colleagues and and to, to who they teach. Um, uh, you know, and sort of expanding, expanding networks, that increasing sort of international networks that come together through through social channels um, in particular areas, and looking at those as right, we don't necessarily need to uh, you know attack a country to achieve an end. We can we can achieve it more more subtly with a, with less uh, damage um, through more social means, and so this introduces new risks. Um, of social engineering, of, of of sort of you know how do we protect um, our intellectual property? How do we how do we make sure that we're we're not being indoctrinated in ways that that are unforeseen? Um, 
but it also introduces, uh, obviously reduces risks of kinetic war. So um, it's a it's a really interesting uh, proposition as to how this will matter. I don't think, you know, just as a citizen sort of observing uh, uh, the world, you know, I think you'll still have especially a local, um, local conflict um, in different regions of the world that have, you know, historically had a lot of that conflict. Um, but but increasingly, I think you'll see that blending with uh, information operations. And what we're trying to prep, do here is to help uh, create a, a, a set of norms and practices by which decision makers in the field, analysts working to understand the world, and then um, decision makers at headquarters operations at the centers of government can all kind of uh, understand what's happening in the information space and, and act accordingly. So Dan, I, I, I knew it would be leading up to this conversation, but this, is, this has been an incredibly interesting discussion, at least on my end. So I, I greatly appreciate it and kind of diving into some of the priorities that you and, and the center um, are having. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience today? Yeah, I think that you can't ever solve any problem, whether it's one that we come out with our basic research or through future shocks, without a collaborative network of, of like-minded individuals. And so one of the one of the things that we strive to do is really to think about who are the partners that we can work with. And those can include government, obviously, they can include academic community, other other industry companies. Frankly, they can also include the media. And how do we how do we kind of collaborate in understanding how best to to deliver messages that the public can consume, that that you know, business community who who reads publications like yours can can consume? How do we kind of uh, drive messaging forward? So I would say the one the one thing that we've learned is that you can have a great idea, but it takes it takes a whole lot of villages to get it done. No, it makes total sense. That I mean, that's the thing that I found in especially within this industry, right? Because there's so many different stakeholders, but the connective tissue is really what has moved things forward. It's the collaboration between government, between commercial industry, uh, between centers like yourself. Um, that has really kind of helped us become more intelligent and be able to actuate on some of the information that we get. So, I, I, again, I really appreciate the time, Dan. This has been not only interesting, but I think it's, it's really nice to see some of the programs you guys are working on, especially as we look to build resilience within government moving forward. Thank you, Brian. It's been a, a really interesting uh, discussion, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.